Welcome everyone to Dabo's Fingers episode 44. This way lay madness. I'm Scatty and Brooke and Matt are with us as always. Hello. Hey. And today we'll be bringing you five chapters from A Storm of Swords. Davos 5, John 7, Bran 4, Danny 5, and Tyrion 7. That's chapters 54 to 58 of A Storm of Swords, according to Wiki of Ice and Fire. And uh, we always do this. We are spoiler-free until the end of the podcast for a special segment that we call Davos After Dark. So don't worry about being spoiled until that point. When we get there, we'll warn you, and you can jump off and uh, save your ears from the sins of the upcoming pages. Couple, A couple listener shout-outs. Uh, Matt, I think you had uh, news from the Twitterverse. News, I guess, but, uh, you know, our blood rider Heather having a kid. Congratulations. She swore that she would never have offspring, and she met the right guy, and one thing led to another, and we are going to be blessed with descendants of Heather. (laughs) Wow. Blessed. Yeesh. Also, our friend Brendan Beefish announced he's having a kid, so congrats to him there. One (laughs) smart kid. When does Brendan Beefish have time to father a child? Yeah. So much for all the essays that everyone's asking about from him. <laughs> he is so prolific. Like, I honestly didn't even know that he was, like, in a relationship. I've always wondered, like, how does he work? Does he have a job? Because he's just writing stuff all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. Good for him. Yeah. And then we just barely missed it. Um, one of our listeners, Polly, wrote us and asked if we if we'd could do a birthday something for her sister, Beth. And it was like the day after we recorded the last episode. So, Beth, it was your birthday like a long time ago now. But happy friggin' birthday. Happy birthday. That's from Virginia. Happy birthday. You're almost to your next birthday by now. Yeah. But <laughs> if you can remember back to that birthday you had, happy birthday. And you yeah. turned 28 oh, this amazing. year. We're almost oh. 29 now already. But... That's a good year. Enjoy those years. Yeah. Actually, I have no idea how old she is. I was just saying that. <laughs> She's 13. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Hopefully not listening to our podcast. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. And then we have some more news from Matt on something that an experience he had over the last few weeks regarding Civil War. Oh, the Captain America Civil War. Yes. <laughs> Not the American Civil War. Wait, let me get you a plate. <sighs> Suck a napkin into your collar. I got it. Okay, it's all there. Fork, yeah. knife. Oh, look at this lovely plate of crow. I'm going to start eating. Does it taste yes. like Sam or does it taste like John? <laughs> kind of Dolores Eddie. All right, all right. Delicious. So I went and saw Civil War in the theater. Went with my brother-in-law one night. Uh, to the late show. And it was awesome. Ah! <laughs> it was, was so it our good. discussion that swayed your opinion? I think that helped. I did think back to some of the things that you guys said, some of the points you brought up and all of that. Um, I loved the characterization. I loved the conflict, the whole story and how it's driven. I, I talked about this, one of the few nice things I said about the film on the on films get fingered was how it uh it wasn't the typical bad guy versus good guy superhero movie it was two good guys and then there was kind of a bad guy thrown in there but uh, that just that point was driven even more home for me how much i loved that i loved that tony and steve were still madly in love with each other obviously and 
and their their belief systems for their sides that they were taking on this deal were legitimate. Like sometimes when you have two good guys pitted against one another, it's obvious that the one good guy is wrong, right? Not so in this one. Like I could see valid points that they were both making. It was heart-wrenching to watch at times. It was great. Two and a half fingers. And I'm just happy because your revised uh, finger count allows me to be the negative finger like I should be. That's why I did it. <laughs> because I gave the lowest review now. Balance has been restored to the universe. Yes, that's right. The force is at balance. Okay. One more thing, just a quick news item. You, Unless you've been living under a rock, you probably already know this, but George released a new Winds of Winter, cha- new the Winds of Winter chapter uh, called, called The Forsaken. Uh, he did that... Uh, Oh, gosh, a few days before we cast. So it's been now two and a half weeks or so since he released it when you hear this, guys. But uh, if you want to read it, go find it. I'm sure it won't be too hard. And uh, a little fun fact that Matt noted, if The Winds of Winter is the same length as A Dance with Dragons, George has already released to us through Comic-Con readings and stuff about one-seventh of (laughs) The Winds of Winter book. So he's kind of... It's kind of interesting. It's it's almost like the internet model now, right? You like you release it as you have it. Yeah. Um, you should just do it like a comic book. Yeah, I'd almost it's be like ha- I'd almost be happy month. reading a chapter a month. It'd be yeah. Anyway. Oh, that would be good actually. Yeah. Really let you savor it. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be death to our format, but uh, you know. I was going to say it kind of emulates our model. Every <laughs> <laughs> yeah, three weeks, that works. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, so go check that out if you're if you're interested. We're not going to cover it in the main portion of Davos Fingers here. We may stumble into it during uh, during Davos After Dark on a whim or something, but we'll warn you if we do. Okay. Uh, last but not least, uh, as always, reach out to us. Uh, ask questions. Uh, comments, whatever you want. Uh, DavosFingers.com, that's our Tumblr site, which Brooke has redone, and it looks awesome. Uh, email at weirddavosfingers at gmail.com, Twitter at DavosFingers, or you can find us and like us on the old Facebooks, and uh, we'll look for you. Thanks for all the feedback we've been getting. It's lovely to hear from you guys when you do. Uh, that's all we got for announcements. Um, Matt, your episode, my chapter. You got anything to add? Yep. Nope. Take away, Sketch. All right. Eyes are crying from the onions in the hold. Save Stanny Boy, save Stanny Boy. Finger bones in a bag mean the truth will be told. Steady devils, steady devils. On Dragonstone, Stannis and his court receive the news of the Red Wedding. Rob dead, his wolf's head sewn to his goddamn body. Cat also killed and deposited in the river. Davos hangs his head knowing the Fraser cursed for violating guest right. Everyone else besides Stannis claims it the work of R'hllor. Stannis wants to use the confusion of the moment to gain allies in the Wolves and Kraken, but Mel claims it's pointless. This is not the time or way to gain allies. She says that now is the time to send a true message of power. Cool story, bro, but I have very little of anything. But all he needs are dragons, and they think the boy, Edric Storm, can give them what they need. But death must pay for life. Where have we heard that before? Anyway, Mel, Axel, and Solis take turns trying to convince Stannis to hand over the boy for execution, but Stannis is a tough nut to crack. The boy was not at fault. True. But remember that R'hllor loves the sacrifice of the innocent, says Mel. What a nice deity to worship, says I. 
Just as Sanus is being seduced to the allure of riding a dragon over the burning corpse of Edric Storm, Davos chimes in, reminding Stannis that taking this action would curse him as a kinslayer. Davos insists that the claim is absurd. Mel refutes that King's blood is powerful, the leeches prove that, referencing back to the leeches that were burned for the false kings, and now two of them are dead. Even an onion smuggler knows two onions from three, Davos replies, to Stannis' delight. <laughs> this passes for proof to Stannis, and until Joffrey dies, as the leeches were sent to accomplish, he won't believe the magic. Everyone's dismissed, but Davos stays behind to bend his king's ear a little further. He bends it in one direction, playing on an emotional angle to make Stannis see Edric as human. Boy, nephew, not leverage. Now we get a heartfelt plea from Stannis. What is the life of one boy against an entire kingdom? Everything, replies Davos, and he's dismissed. As Davos descends, he thinks of his family and notes the sheer number of dragons on Dragonstone. Within these thoughts, he's waylaid by Salador Sand, who tells him to be careful. He knows that Davos is putting out feelers for allies. You have climbed too high, Davos, and the fall could be bad. But Davos believes in his king, doesn't believe he's going to fall. Next, we learn that Davos is learning to read. The Westerosi version of Hooked on Phonics is Maester Pylos, and Davos joins a class every day after his son Devin, Edric, and Shireen learn to ha learn how to phonic. Man, that Ed Edric is a bit of a braggart. Devin studious and Shireen sweet as they explore the history of King Damon I, which you guys can all find in A World of Ice and Fire if it interests you. It interested me. It was a pretty cool story. But Davos shuns that exciting text for scrolls, news, tidings. What he has given alarms him. News we've known for a long time. Mormont feared dead, wildlings invading. They need help from any of the five kings. This news was delivered to the previous hand and ignored, but its forthrightness troubles Davos a lot. Stannis never saw it, nor Mel, according to Pylos, just the Florent Hand. And given their visions that Davos knows about, he thinks it might interest them to know this news. But it's troubling, too troubling, and Davos asks to see another letter. And the chapter ends. I've got a question. Why? Go ahead. Why? Why do they think? Why do they think that sacrificing the boy would wake dragons? It's pretty vague. Because pretty... religion, dude. Because <laughs> uh, they got to do something. Yeah, I agree with that. And this at least has showmanship. I mean, you know, that's fair. I didn't ask the question when they burned the leeches, like why leeches would lead to kings dying. But this just seems like a, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah we'll kill the boy and the, the, the castle will awake with dragons. Yeah. Well, and that's it's an easy out, too, because if it doesn't work, then they can just say, oh, well, it must have been because he was a bastard boy or we didn't have enough faith, you know? Yeah. It's absolutely ridiculous. I love I love Davos how he's just constantly grounding Stannis. Like like Melisandre almost has Stannis there. Remember? Yeah. You kind of alluded to it a little bit, Scat. And he's like, Well, maybe if we just got the boy, we could really do this. And then he like Davos like shouts, like Gurm actually put exclamation point and I think italics. And he says, Your Grace, might I speak? Yeah. Like I love how Davos is just like can't let you do it. He always manages to bring Stannis back. Have we seen Davos do like one thing wrong yet in this whole series? I don't think so. It almost bothers me. I like him so much because he seems right. perfect. Right. Yeah, I'm just know, waiting for thinking... him to screw up epically. Yeah. 
I was thinking about that, how how his entire origin is a smuggler, but I cannot actually see him, see him being a breaking smuggler. laws yeah, and right. stealing and thieving yeah, and uh, sneaking around in the night. Yeah. What I really enjoy about Davos's counsel is that he's not objecting to Melisandre on the base of religion. Like, he's not, right. you know, using arguments of the Seven to counter <laughs> the seven-pointed star says. Yeah. 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 Not, He's no just Bible using bashing. good common sense, which is, one, a smart tactic to use with Stannis, as we've seen. Mm-hmm. And, and two, just it really speaks to his character. Also, I love that he's totally. learning to read. That is huge. Yeah, like, so cool. literacy is a big hurdle. So, he was the king's hand now, and a king's hand should read. Yeah. Yeah. So. so great yeah and then a little offshoot of that more characterization i love um pylos so great because because he was kind of set up in the prologue to be like yeah, kind the of replacement. Yeah. yeah that that young douchey curly-haired replacement yeah but he's actually very smart and very dedicated and seems like a great meester and then also i love that edric and devon are so nice to shireen like <laughs> Davos goes out of her way, out of his way to like lovingly describe her disfigurement like, <laughs> in every small detail. Just how hideous this little girl is. Yeah. But Edric and, and Devon are are you know her little friends, and that's they kind also, of accept her. Yeah, I, I feel like probably Edric, though he's um, a hot-headed little offspring of Robert Baratheon. Or however you pronounce his name, has you maybe been te- has maybe Braxtonian, <laughs> Barryton, whatever it doesn't matter, yeah. Yeah. has probably uh, it's probably easily influenced by strong personalities, just because typically like obnoxious people are, and I feel like maybe Devin has tempered a li- him a little bit, and then Devin's acceptance and and um, inclusion. I would give credit to Davos and his wife for teaching yeah, the kid that. Definitely. Yeah. All great. You covered a All lot great. of stuff in there. I Sorry. Want to go, I want to go back to some of it. Go uh, ahead. Well, even before even before you to, to Matt uh, about about Mel kind of, uh, you used a word that triggered something that I hadn't thought of. Uh, I don't remember what word it was. Seduce, maybe? But she's almost like, there are characters like in... Um, in the Marvel Universe, and it's been a while since I read the comics, so they may have dispersed this from his character by now, but, like, they have very subtle mental powers, like Gambit. Gambit has, like, a, a like a persuasive way that he talks. It's not overt mind control or in any way, but it kind of just, it kind of just butters you up and softens you a little bit. It's like a little, a little mental power. It's almost like Mel has some sort of soothing element to her voice or her mm. person that just kind of suggests that Stannis do a certain thing rather than, you know, kind of overtly controlling him. That and the fact that he's definitely doing her um, in many different <laughs> ways probably, uh, you know, makes him more amenable to her suggestion. But I, I, the way you said that, Matt, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it, it made me think that. Maybe she's got some sort of mental powers, too. Uh, what else was there? Um, oh, uh, we were talking about Davos grounding Stannis, and I had, a, I had a note about that that I wanted to come back to, too. Because we just we just had this discussion, I think it was the last episode, maybe the one before, where we were, Tywin was talking about the ends justifying the means, and 
you know is it is it better right. to to kill thousands of people in war or a dozen at dinner and here we get the same exact argument from stannis yeah. one one boy or a kingdom you know like it's the same argument and the only difference is tywin has yes men or people that are afraid of him and stannis has davos a voice and a reason to check him right mm-hmm. and i don't know i i think that's maybe why why I, I sometimes lean in the way of Stannis of wanting him to come out on top because I feel like he does have Davos and as long as Davos is around nothing too terrible can happen right? Yeah because one another difference between like Stannis and Tywin is Stannis will seek counsel from someone like Davos before he makes a decision we've seen sure, that yeah. a number of times already Tywin doesn't Tywin just does it yeah, and, and doesn't ask he doesn't try to excuse himself later he doesn't uh, try to make any sort of excuse or whatever. He just does it. And that's yeah. another big difference between the two of them. Good parallel. Yeah. And I was thinking about the the, <laughs> the learning to read thing. That's like me living in Utah my whole life. And this shows how uncool I am compared to Davos. Like Davos decides that he's the king's hand he needs to read. And so he does it no matter how old he is. You know, he's got these little kids who can read better than him. He's still just going to suck it up, humble himself, and do it. And that's like me living in Utah my whole life, and I've never once been on a ski hill. And <sighs> I get to this age, and I'm just like, you know what? I'm in my 30s now. Yeah, I've made it this long without skiing. I don't need to learn how to ski. <laughs> Good job, Davos. Way to be better than me. No, I, I feel like you should you should use his bravery to bolster your own personal challenge and get out there on the ski hill. But I would recommend stretching first because you oh are my old God. and yeah. it could be really painful for you. I just started playing hockey again after a five-year layoff. And wow. I'm discovering muscles that I forgot I ever had. That's fun. So like in a league? <laughs> yeah. I'm still sore. Anyway, we should we should make a list of alternates for Davos fingers because Matt might not be with us for very long. No. <laughs> no. Okay. Um, Scott, I, was... I just kind of jumped in there on your list of things you wanted to cover. I'm sorry, I didn't. I didn't ever ask if you were done with your. No. Well, there's a lot of stuff I think we could discover. There's probably there's there's two more that I really think we should probably talk about. One is the whole Relor loves the sacrifice of the innocent thing, and they never claim Relor to be you know, anything like a Christian God, but, and, and I am but a heathen, but I think, Matt, you could probably fill us in on the little ditty about God offering up to split a baby in two. Two fathers, I think, both claim they're his well, that, child. That wasn't God. That was King Solomon. Uh... His two mothers. And he did it as kind of a, not so much expecting them to actually do it, but as a way to get the mother to con- to fess up. Didn't 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 one of them say, "Oh no, well, were, no, I'll let, her, both saying, I'll let her keep the baby because yeah, they were both saying this is my baby. Yeah, they're and both then... saying this is my baby. This is my baby." And he's like, "All right, well, if you guys can't make up your mind, let's cut the baby in half." And one lady, what an idiot, actually is like, "All right." <laughs> and then <laughs> the one, and the real mother was like, "No, you can't harm him. Yeah, him. yeah, fine, give let it, her give it to her. Right. Let her have it. That's fine." Yeah. All right. So my my analogy's not good. Because that wasn't yeah, if that all. was your test for Matt, don't even bother. I got it's church tomorrow at time. nine. Sunday school starts at ten, so I'll pick you up. Uh, 
pass, hard pass. Uh, okay, the other, the only other thing was, um, I just noted uh, the boy was never at fault. So they they're talking, and I didn't cover this too well in the chapter summary, but they're talking about Edric and how his very existence is a product of of Stannis and Selyse's marriage bed being uh, defiled, basically, because he is the product of. Robert Baratheon and a Florent chick getting down in the bed that Stannis and Selyse were were about to. That is bold. Yeah, very bold, or very drunk and didn't know they were in the wrong room or something. But uh, regardless, Stannis, while enraged by the action, knows that it's not the boy's fault, and it's it's the thing that I despise most about Caitlin, Caitlin Catlin that she can't ever get past the fact that. It's not John's fault that Ned cheated on her. The boy was never at fault. It's not Edric's fault. Right. And Stannis sees that, and Cat never can. And, mm. uh, you know, there's a, a, a degree of separation. Cat is the wife of the man cheating. Stannis is just, you know, an uncle of the child or whatever. But, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting comparison between the two characters. Well, yeah, if bastards are the product of lust and deceit... yeah. Awful. And they are forever a symbol of that lust and deceit. And having that in your face all the time is going to be frustrating. But you're absolutely right. She should never take it right. out on John. You guys have anything else? Uh, no. I, there are some parts that made me smile in this chapter. Yeah. <laughs> Where Stannis is like, be quiet, woman, to his wife when she's like crying at his legs and stuff. He's like, oh my gosh, give me a break. I, and, then the, uh... and then the Davos 2 two onions isn't three i just scared you mentioned how entertained stannis was by that and yeah. i could totally just imagine i'm oh, sorry totally imagine stannis just fist bumping davos right there that's true I, you mentioned Celise. going on I, mute i wasn't going to bring this up but because you did i will Celise just sounds unfortunate in every way and i'm not even talking about physically she is does sound like she's ugly but she's also dumb and just kind of impertinent and whiny and clawing and self-important. Just kind of blames everyone but herself for things. It, we had this girl in college that uh, was the girlfriend of one of the guys on the floor who we weren't really very close to, my group of friends. And uh, we call, <laughs> we were awful. We called her, oh my god, I want to kill myself. Because, because that's how you felt when you were around her. <laughs> Because she was ugly in every single way. Like, personally, she was mean and catty and annoying and stupid. And so we just, that's the name we adopted for her. And uh, Celise made me think of her. Wow. <laughs> I also, oh, wow. Mm, I feel like a lot of Celise's personality is also, like, just in defense of having to be married to Stannis. Yeah, maybe. Like, if she had true. a partner who was more supportive and... Interested in her at all, then maybe she wouldn't, you know, seek attention by being an idiot. But yeah, she is. I don't know if I want to kill myself when I'm around her. That is such a harsh nickname. We didn't tell her. I know. Actually, feel gaggy thinking about this poor girl. That's how we felt when she was around. Oh man! Oh, college scad was 
Ooh, spicy. We nicknamed a lot of people. It wasn't, we weren't friendly. Mm. Look, I regret nothing, but we weren't nice. Yeah, I'm sure you walked out with a couple nicknames you don't know about either, so I'm sure. Oh, sure, yeah. What goes around comes around on that one. Yeah, yeah, that's true. All right, ready for some John? Oh, am I ever. Wow, that was lusty. Yes. Where we're going up north where the winter's cold And the icicles bloom like the bluest rose We haven't met his mom, but we love his wolf He's John Snow In the distance, Molestown burns And Castle Black readies itself for wildling attack from the south I want to say that in like, like a really deep in the distance, Molestown burns, <laughs> and Castle Black readies itself for wildling attack from the south. So remember, Bowen Bueller. Marsh. Bueller. <laughs> Bowen Marsh, fearless leader until they can hold a vote for a new Lord Commander, has led the garrison out to deal with the rash of wildling attacks all along the length of the wall. Mance's ploy to weaken the watch so the Bangnar of Then can strike from the rear and open the gates. Maester Amon has sent ravens to four kings, to every stronghold they have birds trained to fly to, and two ravens apiece to all the northern lords. Wildlings at the gate, the north in danger, come with all your strength, he writes. Because, guys, this is no small deal. If the 120 wildlings coming up the King's Road can overtake the castle, they'll open the gate to all the other wildlings, and you're going to have wildlings looting and partying right down to the neck before you can say wildling herpes. Donald Noy, everyone's favorite one-armed, gruff, but lovable blacksmith, has organized a defense with the remaining 40 or so black brothers, a lame bunch of old men, green boys, and cripples. Rounding out the numbers are any refugees from Molestown who know the blade of a spear from the seat of their pants and a few hundred scarecrow sentinels dressed up to look like black brothers lining the rooftops. John, while still healing from Ygritte's arrow to his leg, he assumes it was Ygritte, gets stationed on the roof of the King's Tower with a longbow and two other brothers, Deftick Follard and Satin, a newer recruit from Old Town who's been born and raised in a brothel but has gotten pretty decent with a crossbow. As they prepare for the fight, Dick oiling his own crossbow and Satin fussing with their six companion scarecrows, John thinks of Egret, and also of his uncle Benjen, who had explained the lack of walls around Castle Black when John first arrived to the watch. No wall to defend the castle is deliberate because the Watch takes no part in the quarrels of the realm. Sure, there have been some rotten eggs in the Lord Commander Basket, whom they've stirred up some shit, but for the most part, the Watch is only concerned with threats beyond the wall. So no wall facing south means the castle is completely indefensible. Donald Noy has made some tough calls and decided to sacrifice the kitchens, the common hall, the stables, even the towers. They've emptied the armory and moved what stores they could to the top of the wall, creating a 10-foot-high barricade with the rest of the provisions around the gate, sort of in like a semicircle uh, around the gate, and then um, uh, also around the winch. Um, So this wall of grain sacks and salt mutton also protects the base of the wooden uh, switchback stairs that go to the top of the wall. 
And side note, Gurm describes the stairs as a drunken thunderbolt in this chapter, which I had never pictured before. I thought it was like a, a neat, like almost military-esque staircase, sort of like a like a fire escape all the way to the top of the wall. And I'm wondering if it's because I saw that on the show. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Did you feel the same way? Oh, sweet summer child. <laughs> Just teasing. <laughs> Anyways, it was like a revelation for me that these stairs are just nice. like crooked and dumpy all over the top <laughs> of the wall. <laughs> oh, oh man, Black Brothers, you poor guys. Stair makers, they are not. Listen, they got like boy whores and people that have never been trained at all doing their engineering. What do you expect? I expect that boy whores are very capable. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> The sacrifice for the kitchens is particularly heart-wrenching to me since Three-Fingered Hob is a delightful cook and Gurm has shown us time and time again that the hardships of life at Castle Black are tempered by reliably excellent meals. In this chapter, as they're waiting for the Magnar and the Wildlings to attack, Hob sends John, Dick, and Satin up cheese, onions, and warm rolls with pine nuts and raisins and dried apples in them. Oh, he even included a crock of butter for the rolls. Just an outstanding last meal. Bob, wanted to mention that. What so a guy. great, so great. What a guy. Anyways, as John predicted, steer and the wildlings attack that night, and it's on. No help is coming from the northern lords. The garrison hasn't returned, and the wildlings haven't abandoned their mission and continued south as John had hoped Egret might do. John and Satin do fairly well, taking out shadows creeping in through the towers. But Def Dick gets shot defending the armory, a lucky shot by a familiar red-haired archer on the ground. John has Egret in his sights, but hesitates as she jarts out of range. All too soon, the castle is overrun, the stables and common hall on fire, and the Thens attacking the barricade, shouting war cries in the old tongue. The trap door to the roof of uh, the King's Tower, which John and Satin are on, springs open, and the wildlings have broken in the bottom and come up to the top. John and Satin pour a kettle of boiling oil down the stairs, medieval style. The shrieks are like nothing John has ever heard, and Satin looks like he's going to lose his lunch like a rookie cop. John tells him to retch later, and they watch from the tower as the barricade is taken. The gate left undefended as the Molestown defenders fall back to the staircase and the safety of the top of the wall. The wildlings give a bloody chase at the stairs, washing over the defenders on each landing. John spies Steer standing on top of the barricade, giving orders to open the gate and look in real smug. But before John can put an arrow through one of the Magnar's ear holes, the <laughs> signal to light the tinder and barrels of lamp oil stacked beneath the staircase is given, and John looses a fire arrow at the staircase instead of at Steer. Donald Noy has soaked the seventh to the ninth landings in oil, and that gets to put put to flame too, neatly trapping the 70 wildlings between the base of the staircase, which is on fire, and then the second fire up on the seventh landing. It's a desperate, brilliant move, and the Magnar dies with the rest, buried when the stairs collapse with a bunch of ice from the heated wall. John takes no time to celebrate, taking a torch down to the courtyard with Satin's help. There he finds Egret, an arrow through her chest. She opens her eyes when he kneels beside her. 
Do you remember that cave? She asked him softly. We should have stayed in that cave. I told you so. And John tells her, we'll be back to that cave. You're not going to die, Egret. You're not. And she says, you know nothing, Jon Snow. Cupping his cheek. And then she dies. That's the end of the chapter. It's really terrible. Gurm just can't give us a break. No. Rob, Cat, Egret. Just really just mowing down all these great characters. How I love the let me count the pages. <clears throat> John and Egret, the only real romance in the books is dead. After, yeah. like, I don't even know what is, what is it, like, one book? About, yeah, the, about the whole thing book. happened. Yeah, yeah in, in one book. book. Yeah. And, and um, you know, any other writer would be like, John would would be witnessing a Greek get shot, right? Like he would see it and it'd be almost like slow motion and everything. And he'd be like, no, as he's running down the, t- climbing down the tower to go after her and save her and everything. But no, Germ's just like, yeah, he found her with an arrow in her chest. She gone. It is kind of like battle realistic. Um, sure. I did. I did enjoy the desperation of John being like, "You're not going to die. I'm going to take you to Maystream and yeah. we're gonna get you all patched we'll get you. up, like we'll squared away." Yep. Yeah, kind of very much unlike John, especially after he's shown throughout this entire battle, like how level-headed and smart he is. To for him right. to just be like babbling like a crazy person over this dying woman was like as probably as much emotion as we're going to get out of John. <laughs> he's a pretty, pretty steady guy. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, really, really terrible and heartbreaking. Um, but great chapter. Can you agree, can you oh agree with gosh. me on that? Yeah. Man, exciting. It it's almost like you don't realize how long it is. It's a really long chapter. And yeah. you're just glued to the pages. Like, I really didn't even notice how long it was till I was done. Yeah, because it's not just the action of the battle, which was actually relatively short, but the whole chapter is peppered with gems. Stuff like John thinking a lot about Eddard's teachings. Like, like we get a, a glimpse of... Yeah, we get two of those. His, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like uh, one, Ned said that a commander is only as good as his lungs. Um, and that's why John admires Donald Noyes' um, leadership abilities so much, because he has such a good... A good uh, yelling voice, and apparently Ned used about. to make yeah John and Rob yell at each other across Winterfell when they were kids, which I have trouble imagining John doing. But I love the Ned is so idea. cool. He is so cool. Also, he taught John that a fighter is never more vulnerable than when he's fleeing because it ignites like a almost like a prey instinct in his opponent, and they'll. Right. they'll They'll sense victory and go all the harder. So you should always stand and fight, which I thought was great advice across the board. I don't know if this is true in hockey, but in soccer, like there's very much a sense of there's a very much a sense of a flow to the game. And when the other team is is on its heels and feeling and feeling vulnerable, you can you can like that's when you, you push. can feel it. You can yeah. just feel it. Even even watching it, even if you're not playing, I've said to my wife countless times, like they're gonna score in the next five minutes. Like yeah. you, you can just feel it coming. It's it's really weird that you could that you could sense that, but it's a similar thing. It's just you can sense that they have nothing left. And uh, and John John even says it to Satin. Satin says they're breaking, and he says they're broken. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and that's ties into uh, Eddard's lessons. Ties into what really impressed me with John is he's been through so much, 
you know, beyond the wall and everything so far that I think it's easy to forget that this is his first real, like, large-scale battle situation that he's ever been in. He's never been in a in like a battle with two sides against each other before. And yet he's the one up on the tower giving Satin and the pep talk, you know, and seeming really calm, like do this and do that, do that. Like he's been like, he's a vet of 30 battles and yet he's never been in one. You don't even, or seen one or yeah, that just totally hit me. This read, I've read these books, I don't know, three times through now, four times with this, this reread. And I just barely hit me that John has all this advice, all this great stuff, and yet he's never been in a real battle before. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that's unless you count the battle with Corin. But uh, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, he, there's fight. the one-on-one yeah. type stuff, yeah. and you know he, you know, all this stuff that he did beyond the wall. But a big our side against your side battle. Yeah, this is the first one he's ever been in. Yeah, he did admit to himself a couple of times that he was afraid, but he was never, he never felt incapable. He never felt helpless. Like he knew exactly what needed to be done. Mm -hmm. And when you think about it, like um, him and Satin and Def Dick, they got like the sharp end of the stick on, or the short end of the stick on this whole battle. Like the safest place would have been above the ninth landing on the staircase. You know, like being an archer there so that you had a direct line to the safest oh. place, which was the top of the wall. And they had these guys pretty much like front line. And yeah. uh, I don't think John ever acknowledged the fact that he was battle fodder in this one. Right. Cause if everything gets overrun, you know, it's only a matter of time until they get up to the top of that tower. Yeah. Yeah. John only has were... so much pitch to drop <clears throat> down, boiling yeah. I mean, oil to drop down and stuff. Yeah. Someone, someone had to be there, but the sacrifice would... was chosen carefully, and it was the boy horror, John the Turncloak, and With Def the bum Dick. Leg. Who, yeah, <laughs> Def Dick seemed like a pretty good guy. I don't know why he got yeah. shafted yeah. on that one. Yeah. I also think that's why they got the good food, too. Like, that was some pity meals. Oh, that was the <laughs> day of execution, final meal yeah. type thing. I would say maybe the worst spot of that whole battle would be at the... uh, At the barricade. The barricade. Those people are set up to lose so that it looks like the retreat is on, right? Yeah. I mean, as long as they could make it up the stairs. But they still had a retreat. Okay. Yeah. Like, the odds were still slightly more stacked in their favor. But, but, But they had to be told, like, okay, you guys, you can retreat, but not until this many of you die. So fight hard. Right? Yeah. Like, because it had to look look real. Yeah, Yeah, it would be very late and very difficult to retreat. Yeah. Yeah. To be fair, there was no good position in that fight. It was. No. Yeah. Just the setup of Castle Black, which you described very well. Donald Noy is fantastic. Yeah. Really proud of him. What a gem. Yeah. What a gem. But you gotta wonder. He's been hiding out in the armory all these years. Yeah, but think about it. When. When John rode up from the south after he had escaped the wildlings, there were no guards like on that side of of, of the castle yeah. facing south. No one stopped. He, him. He, he had to go into the blacksmith, like into the smithy, and find Donald Noy. And, and and then Donald was like, "Oh, hey, what's up?" Like, had they, he not warned them, yeah, the wildlings would have won. Over. Yeah, for sure, it would have been a slaughter. Yeah. Oh yeah, slaughter. They would have had that gate open, and who knows what would have happened. Oh gosh, Donald. Yeah. So so Donald Noy planned that whole defense, right? Yes. 
Yeah. He kind of took over as yeah. leader. I don't think he was ever appointed it. He just kind of saw that he no. needed to and just did it. He's a master Words, of battle steps. tactics, but he's, he's just a blacksmith, right? Like, he doesn't have training either. Pretty impressive that he kind of came up with this whole plan. John did say that he had battle experience. Really? Yeah. Oh. I can't remember where. I think that's how he lost his arm. Hmm. That would make sense. Fighting the rebellion. That's why he ended up the wall. Hmm. He was a Baratheon I- man. Yeah, but I would think the Baratheons, maybe he's not that good of a blacksmith. I would think they would hold their uh, blacksmith back, you know, so as not to lose the person that makes their armor. But maybe, you know, Triple D wasn't the up. smartest guy around. <clears throat> True um, okay. Uh, veteran of many battles, he left the service of House Baratheon after Robert's Rebellion, having lost an arm during the Siege of Storm's End. Okay. Oh, the Siege of... Whoa, that's weird. There wasn't a lot of battle at the Siege of Storm's End. Everyone was just kind of hiding behind the wall, right? Interesting that he's on the side of the victors and he's like, yeah, you know what? I don't want to be here. I'm going to go up to the wall. It is interesting. Anyways. Well, we'll find out more about that. Hmm. Uh, your episode title, Matt. Yeah. This Way Lay Madness. Yeah. I changed it to This Way Lay Madness because I like the sound of it better. The exact quote is That Way Lay Madness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and it's when John is thinking about a greet. And haven't we all thought that when thinking mm-hmm. about a woman? And yet well. we still... <laughs> Don't lie, Brooke. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Look, Come I wish. On. But unfortunately, no. <laughs> <laughs> or a dude. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah. We're just um, like, this is stupid. This is stupid. What I'm doing is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> well, and just that you'll drive yourself mad thinking about yep. that conflict. Yeah. Many a night, middle school, when you're lying there. <laughs> I can't get her to like me somehow. Yeah. Well, yeah, we got to really credit John even more that uh, you, through his first battle through all of the confusion, through all of the despair. I mean, they had very little hope in this battle. Um, and then add on top of that, his thoughts of Egret, like, he really held it together. He did. So, yep. reading, rereading this chapter, I think I think it's because John's a bit of a caretaker, just the way that he treated Satin, like, not babying him or anything, but taking the time to make sure that Satin was fighting correctly and... Oh, we see that with Sam, safe. right? Yeah, and and at one point, when the war horn blows, Satin does piss himself. So I almost right. feel like John saw that and was like, "Aw, this is familiar territory for me." You know what? <laughs> I know I'm another guy <laughs> who pisses himself, yeah. who I really love. So <laughs> I wonder if that's John just wanting to give people the something that he never had, right? Yeah, and that that's like a, a caretaker complex, and right. it's not necessarily a bad thing. Nope. Uh, he does have it to some degree. Good point. Anyways, anything mm-hmm. else you guys wanted to uh, cover here? John's last words to Ygritte. I think, Ygritte, you think you read them, Brooke. Uh, they, were a, they were a lie. Yeah. So you heard it here first. John's a liar. <laughs> John likes to lie to people on their deathbed. Um, yeah. Again, I would credit that to him just being like, really desperate for Ygritte not to die, for him really regretting fighting her, leaving her, being with her in the first place. A lot of emotions there. Yep. Uh, 
gosh, it feels like we should talk about this chapter more, but uh-huh. I don't know. It's a battle it chapter. Yeah. Uh, Some great stuff. Really liked it. Okay. I got nothing else, I think. We can talk about food more if you want. <laughs> mm. Onions and cheese. Ugh. So good. Mm. I'm thinking like they, a nice Stilton. Oh, yeah. They freaking love onions in Westeros. Yeah. Everything has onions in it. Ugh. I wouldn't survive. <laughs> oh, I can't believe we're friends. Okay, let's move on to the next <laughs> Really? Chapter. That? That's it? That's what does it? <laughs> yeah, that's that's the line that you guys cross. <laughs> I, don't, I love flavorful food. I, like anything with like onions or pickles or peppers or hot sauce. Oh, bring it. Delicious. All right, Bran. Bran. I'm not talking about the chapter. I'm talking about the food. That's more my speed. <laughs> well, I'm talking about the chapter. So, oh. take us there, buddy. <clears throat> All right. Apologies in advance. This is a bit of a long summary. Um, and it's also uh, a bit uh, Stephen Kingish. It's a uh, freaking long chapters, though. It, it was mm. a long chapter. Yeah. Thanks Scott, for you, that. You, you, you looked at the pages <laughs> and you said that like of this chapter block was like eighty pages or something like that. Yeah, it was eighty-ish pages. Yeah. Brandon Stark, won't you come back down from that tower your mind's been flying from? Your legs don't work, but they don't really need to work when that third eye's showing you the ways unexplored, and the summer's gonna come. You know it's gonna come. Summer's gonna come, and boy, you're gonna fly away. All right, Mira, Jojen, Hoder, Summer, and the Little Princeling arrive at quote unquote another empty castle according to Mira. But Bran knows better. Home to at least eight noted scary stories and countless scary documented sounds, Bran knows the night fort to be something far more than that. Combining that with a dream Brummer had, wherein Rob and Greywind were pining for the fjords, Bran is pretty creeped out. Additionally, Bran feels they're wasting their time as there's no way through the wall at the night fort. He told them and told them, but Jojen can be a son of a bitch when it comes to following his dreams. His dreams are made of night fort, and who is Bran to disagree? In an abandoned castle with seemingly no way through, and at a loss for what to do next, they decide to send Mira up the wall to take a look, while Bran and Jojen just search around the castle. In between the searching, Mira's return, the eating and the sleeping, Bran tells us, or remembers, three of Nan's stories uh, in this chapter. I'll, I'll summarize them briefly. Uh, first, there was the 79 Sentinels. 79 deserters betrayed by one of their fathers and brought back to the wall. They continue their watch frozen in some carved-out ice cells within the wall itself. Basically just oh. frozen there, alive. Well, they were frozen alive. I'm sure they're dead now. Looking off the wall, uh, their their watch uh, doesn't end. It maintains. Then there's the Night's King. The 13th leader of the watch, he fell in love with a woman with white skin and blue eyes. He mm. caught her, loved her, named her his uh, queen... In sorceling and ruling the Night wa- Night's Watch for 13 years, he sacrificed to the others, and eventually he was put down by Starks and Wildlings. Then there was the Rat Cook. This dude cooked the son of a king into a pie and served it to the king, who loved it and asked for seconds. But the gods didn't love it, and punished the man by turning him into a big white rat that could only eat his own young. His crime? Not murder, but breaking guest right something we just saw happen with the red wedding okay goosebumps time is over 
They settle in a kitchen that sounds about as cozy as a horror film torture room, with a huge well in the middle, just ready for that girl from the ring to crawl out. It seemingly has no end, the well, so Hoder pulls a pippin, throwing a piece of slate down that is gulped up by some liquid far, far below. This is all much to Gandalf's uh, brand's frustration, and they eventually decide to settle down and try to grab some shut-eye in the Bates Motel. But just as Bran is drifting to sleep, he hears a noise. A scuffling noise. The scuffling noise has become footsteps, and all the stories come flooding back to Bran. Bran thinks of slipping his skin, but Summer isn't around. The footfalls are heavy. Bran wants to hide. Next, he wakes Mira, who springs to her feet and creeps toward the well, net and spear at the ready. But he couldn't let Mira fight the well monster alone, so Bran slips inside Hodor, or, or rather shoves and pushes and drags himself inside a very resistant hoder. And like that, he is a hulking behemoth of a man with a steel sword. But the thing emerges from the well, lurching into the moonlight, and the fear pushes Bran back into his own body laying on the floor. Mira meanwhile wraps the shape in her net, flashes her spear, and it rolls around and begs for mercy. It's Sam! He begs and is set free as they realize he's just a harmless black brother. Gilly, who followed the monster out of the well, introduces them and asks if Jojen is the one. Does he know Kung Fu? <laughs> Cold Hands is looking for the one. Yes, the one that knows Kung Fu. They tell him about Cold Hands. Man, what a weird meeting. There's all these people introducing each other and talking about people that haven't met and who's the one. I don't know what's going on. It's so weird. George even gets into like a little who's on first comedy troupe action going on in a little, a little bit in there. So Sam McGilly came through the Black Gate, a gate only a black brother could find and open. But Cold Hands couldn't come with them. The wall is magic, spells woven in and cool stuff that we've heard about. Sam insists that they come back with him, that Jojen be taken to Cold Hands, but Jojen counters. Bran knows Kung Fu. Bran is the one you want. Sam looks at Bran for the first time and realizes he's looking at John's brother. Summer sniffs at Sam, licks him, and Bran decides that he trusts him and they're going to go with him. They descend the well, find the black gate. It's a weirwood gate, white with a face on it. And it asks them a question. Who are you? Sam recites the Night's Watch Oath and the door lets them pass. As they pass, Bran bumps his head on the door and a warm, salty drop of water falls on him. And the chapter ends. Wow. Yeah. So that door, man... So we're led to believe essentially that it disappears and reappears only if Black Brothers come through, or it'll just stay closed if you can't recite the oath, but is it really that simple? You just need to know those words? Because I'm sure they're written down somewhere. I think it's they somehow sense that it's a Black Brother. Yeah, maybe. So, there's That's some magic in there that As it's they know that the... you've taken... Well, well, it's Weirwood, right? Yeah. Oh, no, that can't be... Well, cause, because the... Um... Nope, this is getting into Office After Dark. Never mind. <laughs> well, it's it, the way it's written, other than the fact that it says, Sam says something about, well, you would never even be able to find it, which is weird, like it moves or something. But he also says, when he says the words, it just kind of is like, okay, cool. It reminded me of the Bridge of Eternal Peril. Who would cross the Bridge of Death must answer me these questions three. Eh, the other side, he see. Ask me the questions, Bridgekeeper. I'm not afraid. Where all you have to do is answer three inanely easy questions, and you're allowed to answer me these questions three. Yes. In the other side, you'll see. What is your name? <laughs> what 
is your quest. <laughs> what is your favorite color? Yellow. No, blue. <laughs> Unless you get the airspeed velocity of uh, migrating swallow, and then you're screwed. So African or European? Okay. Right. Indeed. Uh, I don't know. I, the the door just. Uh, to be honest, I kind of had forgotten about it. I didn't remember it when I got to it. I was like, oh, this is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Sometimes he comes in with this like magicy magic. Yes. Not, that's super magic. Not a, a door with a magic. face on it. Not like <laughs> oh, like a stone dragon. Oh, there's spells on the wall. Like loosey goosey shit. Like an actual yeah. Like a, a, a magic door. door. Yeah. <laughs> like, it opens. Yeah. It's Harry Potter or something. Opens into Jeez. a doorway. Yeah. It's like Alice in Wonderland or yeah, totally. weird stuff. I thought that was pretty cool, but what actually like got me even more giddy was the fact that the monster was Sam. Like two <laughs> two chapters so beautifully I don't know, meeting up. They don't really intersect. They actually they meet up. I didn't yes. see it coming. I, I had no idea and it was just so perfect that it was Sam who found Bran. It's so uncommon that two POVs intersect. And yeah, yeah. you're absolutely right. The fact that it's Sam and Bran is pretty cool. We always have like near misses, but this was like <laughs> literally. Oh, we just had one, nets. right? We had the Bran and John almost meet up. Yeah. And uh, yeah. here we finally got one. Yeah. Arya and Catelyn a couple times. Yes. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Uh, How about the uh, female others that can apparently breed according to the Night's King legend? That's That, that was like. Gave me the willies. 900 some lord commanders ago it was a long ass time ago yeah Yeah, so it might have like thousands of years yeah 13th lord commander yeah Yeah. worked in the telling a little bit so i'm not certain that it was a female other but interesting Uh, it It sounds like like one but get a little interesting that it was a stark cold down there well nan (laughs) says it was a stark again the stories grow in the telling it's refreshing maybe Oh, Maybe some guys like that. I mean, which? Uh, nope, I'm not going there. It's a stark thing. Yeah, exactly. The, the use of winter ice is coming is, is not uh, an unknown. Winter's coming. That's good. It's just where that started. It's just oh. interesting because we know what we've seen is that Crasser donates babies. And the others do something with them. We have thought that perhaps that they turn them into others, right? And that's how they increase their numbers. We don't know that. But it would be like they ran out of females or... I don't know. Mm. It's interesting interesting to speculate, I guess. But mm-hmm. I caught all the Lord of the Rings references in this chapter. Hodor dropping stuff down the well. Yep. Like Pippin. Fool of a Took! Uh-huh. <laughs> Calling the blade, the gate, the black gate, the black gate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And was this written before or after the Matrix? For anyone that doesn't understand all the I know kung fu references that I put in the chapter summary, Matrix came out in ninety nine, so before. When was this book written, though? Wasn't it like two thousand one? Oh, maybe. I don't know. I'd have to check. Anyway, interesting. Regardless. Mm Hmm. Uh, Sword of Swords was two thousand. Interesting. So pretty similar time frame uh the wall stops cold hands gonna stop others right like who even needs the night's watch well their purpose is kind of in the name 
There's third watch. Yeah, true. We're, <laughs> we're going to watch the others crush themselves on the wall. We're just going to watch. Brought the s'mores. Uh, yeah, but there there was some good. I loved all these chapters except for the unfortunate deaths um, of the story of the Sentinels. Oh, so creepy. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. barbaric. And the father going back to to take his son's watch afterwards. Yes. Love cool. details like that. So great. How about the rat cook stuff too? Very apropos given the recent Red Wedding episode uh, chapter. Um, yeah, that really nails it in, right? Yeah. How. how not good it is to betray a guest. Yeah. Not Rodents good. of unusual size? I don't believe they exist. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. What about the RUSs? Rodents of unusual size? I don't think they exist. The good news, though, is that if Walder suffers the same punishment as the rat cook, at least he has plenty of young to devour. I like that. I like yeah, that comparison. He is... The He's we- kind of rat-like. The Weasel King. You guys have anything else? Quick catch. When Mira climbs to the top of the wall, she says she waves to an eagle. And I couldn't help but wonder if it's our if it's our friend Orel yeah, from so beyond the wall. I assume he was. He's out there scouting as they are planning all these little tiny attacks along the wall, right? And mm. I mean, I don't think it made a difference. He probably just saw a girl up on the wall. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, maybe it did though. Maybe the wildlings were planning to attack around the night fort, and then he saw someone up on the wall, and so he's like, "Oh, better not attack there. They've got some people stationed there or something." I don't know. Maybe it did make a little difference, but depends a little bit on timing. I mean, if if mm-hmm. if they know the results of this uh, battle that we just read, they might be looking for something else. I mean, I, they've put pretty much right. all their eggs in the stir basket uh, of you know opening the gate from the other side, but. Uh, yeah, who knows? Yeah. I'm impressed that Mira climbed that wall, even with, you know, melted down awful. steps. It sounded terrible. I didn't go into it in the chapter summary, but basically this is the only castle where the steps are carved out of the ice. So they're right. ice steps. And they've, I don't, frankly, it doesn't sound to me like they've worn enough. First of all, they're the ice steps. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And steps that are ice and they're like rounded from time right and so oh this gosh. doesn't sound safe at all yeah, yeah Bran was worried about her coming down but i feel like she just could have slid down yeah <laughs> be kind of fun um but like we had like two chapters dedicated to the last climb to when john Egret climbed like it is True. no easy feat yeah she just kind of like nipped up and nipped it back Scampered down is impressive there. yeah pretty yeah. good I, I did want to just throw in Bran. Uh, I, I like the relationships between the wolves and the, and the kids. And Bran's relationship with Summer is off the charts. We, you know, we've talked before about Rob and how he trusts Grey Wind, and you know, Grey Wind clearly didn't like didn't like people, and kind of uh, Rob just kind of pushed Grey Wind out of the picture. All it took was Summer to sniff and lick Sam's hand. Yeah, and Bran was like, "We're in." Mm. Yeah, we're in. I caught that note too. Very cool. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Like this, this is how it's supposed to work. The wolves are here for you to use. Listen to them. Sort of like Thor's hammer in Age of Ultron when Vision picks it up. Thor's like, "Okay, we can trust this guy. You can keep that Infinity Stone. Right. No problem." Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. You saw that movie, right? I did. Oh yeah. Okay, great. But only once. I don't remember it very well. But I do remember that part now. Mm-hmm. Excellent. 
Interesting the insights we're getting into the wolves uh, as Summer or as Bran is able to spend some more time in Summer's mind. Um, he finds out he knows something's up with Robin Greywind. He doesn't say exactly what. He says, then it wouldn't have happened and Robin Greywind would still be dot dot dot. But somehow Bran, clear up at the wall, knows about Rob and Greywind. And that's, uh, that's interesting. Well, he doesn't tell us. He knows. I, I mean, what are we supposed to complete that sentence with? Vegetarians? I mean, mm-hmm. wh- oh, yeah, obviously. The point is that there's a connection oh. amongst the wolves. Yes. And we're starting to see more into that and how it is a real legitimate connection. Yeah, which, yeah, we've talked a little bit about that before and how far does it go and what do they really know. Yeah, it's very interesting to me. Okay. All right. Anything else on Bran? I'm good. All right. Well, I'm going to jump into Danny then. Silver hair and purple eyes always on the go. Kicking it with the dragon kids and Jorothy. And does she know just where she got to go and won't be Tyrion? Look how Westerosi comes the nearest Targaryen. Uh, jumping over across a continent now. So just to quickly summarize, on her quest to free slaves, Danny has now conquered both the slaver cities of Astapor and Yunkai, and next on the tour of Slaver's Bay is Marine, which is as big, by the way, as both those cities combined. And Danny's intent as ever on taking this city, uh, owing partially to the fact that the great masters of Marine had nailed a still-living yet gutted slave child to every milepost on the approach to the city. 163 mile posts. Dario Naharis, leader of the Stormcrow sellsword group now sworn to Danny, tried to take the children down before Danny could see, but she insisted upon looking at each one, saying, I will see them, I will see everyone and count them and look upon their faces, and I will remember. So with approaching with what can only be described as her horde, which includes countless freed slaves who she cannot just turn away, but who also eat the land dry, uh, Danny is met at Marine's gate by the city's champion. A strapping fellow he is, dressed in pink and white, hair done up, teased and everything to look like ram's horns, and with a 14-foot lance as his primary weapon. Beneath the walls of Marine, he waits upon his horse, challenging Danny to send forth a champion of her own to take him on. And by challenging, we mean stuff like pulling out his wiener and peeing in their general direction. I fart in your general direction. Your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberries. <laughs> Which only encourages his fellows defenders up on the city walls to start pissing at them, too. So there's just all these people peeing at Danny right now. Uh, so, of course, Danny's going to send someone else to meet him. She agrees with Arston that they need to send someone else to, out to fight him. Uh, more for just appearances, actually. So Danny agrees. She turns down the offer of her blood riders to go do it. She relies heavily on them. She also turns down Dario, who she needs to lead the Stormcrows, and who she's crushing on, let's be honest. And finally, she makes her decision. Scad's man, Strong Belwas. So as our favorite tubby tubby, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as our favorite tubby tubby straps on his razor sharp arak and teensy weensy shield, lumbering forth in his cute little vest that covers nothing of his vast torso. 
Uh, Ricardo asked Danny, why in the heck did she pick the fat and stupid? That's a direct quote, Belwas. Danny replies that it's because he was a slave in Marine. So whether he wins or loses, it doesn't look great for the great masters. They just beat a former slave. Plus, Belwas didn't lead troops, plan battles, or give counsel. And my only response to that is, why the heck not? I mean, underutilize your resources much, Stormborn? Anyways, Belwas steps out from the crowd to jeers of the Marine defenders and Oznek Zopal. By the way, that's the name of the Marine champion guy. Don't worry, you don't need to remember it. So he charges, lowering his lance. Belwas stands his ground, not once but three times, each time dodging at the last second rather easily to avoid the dangerous but unwieldy lance of his foe. So Belwas is pretty light on his feet. But on the third time that Oznek charges... Belwas strikes, cutting out Osnek's horse's legs from under him, sorry, Brooke, then dispatching Osnek himself rather quickly, planting his sword between the urinator's eyes, then decapitating him and holding up the head for all to see. He finishes off the show by dropping a deuce right in front of the city's <laughs> defenders. He just like pulls down his pants, squats, and boom. You're going to pee in front of us. I'm going to one-up you. Uh, then he calmly returns back to where he'd been five minutes before, hanging out by a tent and eating sausage. <laughs> so, as if nothing had happened. Uh, after the, this duel, Danny convenes a war council to discuss the difficult task of taking Marine. Storming the walls, either on land or seaward side, is deemed next to impossible, leading Jor and her blood riders to cautiously suggest that it may be of more benefit to just cut their losses and kind of skip Marine. Just head on to Pentos with her army. Uh, but they do say they'd have to leave behind the non-combatant freed slaves who are only a burden at this point. Um, this isn't even an option, though, to the one-track-minded Danny, who points out that the city's well-provisioned with supplies they need, as well as plenty of riches that could come in handy as well. Furthermore, this is now personal. She remembers the faces of the slave children nailed to the mile markers, and she's not about to let that go. It's then that Brown Ben Plum, a new character... Uh, the congenial leader of the Second Sons Sellsword Company that also joined her after she defeated them at Yunkai offers a final suggestion. Why don't we go through the sewers? It would be stinky, cramped, and not without risk, but it might be the only way into the well-fortified city. Danny decides she needs to think it over. And taking with her Miss Ende, as well as Arston Whitebeard for protection, Danny saddles up her mare and goes for a ride to clear her head. Out and about, she finds herself riding past the sprawling camp of her freedmen, bustling with men, women, and children. Noticing her, she is soon thronged by her adoring fans, which admittedly gives her a bit of a rush, and she makes time for them, offering kind words and such from horseback. But it's then that a less gentle hand grabs her wrist and won't let go. Turning, Danny finds it to be none other than Miro. Remember that guy? I didn't. I had to look it up. The old commander of the Second Sun Sellsword Company, who she'd traded verbal jabs with a couple chapters back. Turns out that after his defeat at Yunkai, he disguised himself and hid out among the freedmen just waiting for a shot at revenge, and here he was going to take it. So whipping out a sword, he goes for the killing blow until who jumps into action but Arston Whitebeard. We get this really cool battle description of Arston going to town with just a staff on the hardened battle vet Miro. Uh, he eventually disables him by breaking his leg, knocks him in the head, and then Miro is set upon and killed by angry freedmen. So Danny, after this, is taken back to her tent, and Jorah is suspicious. Jorah suspicious? 
come on, never. <laughs> How could a squire and an elderly squire at that best a battle-hardened sellsword commander? This wasn't just some lackey. I mean, you don't get to be a commander of a sellsword company and be a bad fighter. He had skill. Uh, he was no little finger when it came to one-on-one -on -one combat. Danny announces that she'd like Arston to be knighted. And when both Jorah and Arston adamantly refuse, the truth comes out. Arston was already a knight, guys. Before entering the service of Illyrio Mopatis, he'd been a knight in Westeros. And it's then that Jorah recognizes him. He is former Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Barristan Selmy. <gasps> Thank God we don't have to hide that anymore. Holy shit. <laughs> it's out. Remember him? The guy who Joffrey forced into retirement clear back in Game of Thrones and who we haven't heard from since? One of the most legendary knights in all of Westeros? Well, here he is. Jorah, ever jealous, informs Danny that Barrison served on Robert's Kingsguard. Yes, the same Robert who had allegedly been hunting her and Viserys all those years. But Barristan, humble as can be, admits that he did indeed serve King Robert after the rebellion, and he'd served King Aerys, her father, before that. But after being dismissed from the Kingsguard, he decided his loyalty remained with House Targaryen, and he sought Danny and Viserys out, committed to serving his true king the rest of his days. He then fires a couple shots back at Jorah, reminding him that during the rebellion, Barristan did, in, did indeed fight on the side of the Targaryens, while Jorah fought for, you guessed it, King Robert. Furthermore, Selmy, as Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, had sat in on numerous small council meetings with the king, where spy reports regarding Danny's location were discussed. The spy reports were meticulous in their detail, and the informer was obviously very close to Danny. Wink, wink. He was an insider. It becomes obvious who the informer is when Jorah's face turns red and he throws a little bit of a fit. Uh, he begrudgingly and bumblingly admits guilt, um, saying that on the promise that he would, able to, he would be able to return from exile to his home at Bear Isle, he had indeed spied on Danny. But he'd stopped after he'd realized that he was in love with, oh, nope, don't even go there, buddy. Danny says, and not really knowing what to feel, but under the distinct impression that her world is kind of falling apart, she tells both Jorah and Barristan to GTFO. And when Barristan humbly asks where they should go, Danny doesn't know at first and really doesn't care, but then she has an idea. And that's the end of the chapter. Cliffhanger! Yep. So glad we don't have to hide that secret anymore. It's one of the hardest ones to keep because Arston sounds so much like, like Barristan to begin with. It's so easy to just say one or the other. And one of our listeners called us out for spoiling it once. And we're like, no, no, we're so careful. We were like freaking no, out. But that person was wrong, right? So they, yeah, they, they apologized after they misheard. But I don't blame him for mishearing. The names yeah. sound exactly the goddamn same. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's crazy how George could just bring this guy up, who really we hadn't seen since, what was it, the first half of Game of Thrones? Um, Two books later, he's all of a sudden back on the scene. It's crazy. But... Yeah, I guess so. I, I do remember having to go back after learning his true identity and like uh -huh. kind of like reinvest myself in Arston, which at first right. I wasn't too enamored with. <laughs> Like, to us on a second or third reread or whatever, it's like, yeah, Barristan! Yeah. You're so excited waiting for the big reveal. But it, with the first time reading, you're probably like, who? All right. I'm still more excited for Belwas to get on the scene. Uh, I love I'm that sure guy. I'm sure you were. Here's the thing. Nobody believes him. 
It's like, look at all the cuts on his belly. Dude's got uh-huh. game. Mm-hmm. Nobody believes him. And he's him. It's still like, fat and stupid. He is fat and stupid, and I don't blame her for not taking his counsel and stuff. But he was sent as protection, as like a bodyguard, so he wasn't sent to, to be a tactician. Anyway, right. it reminds yeah. me a little bit of, yeah, I'm going Willow. When <laughs> when Val Kilmer, Mad Martin, fin- finally gets his sword and is like slashing through people, and uh, R2-D2's like, you are great! And, uh, <laughs> and it's just like, this, this is the same thing with Belwas. It's like, oh, dude is, dude is great. Look at him. I'm a little disappointed in Danny not appreciating him more because she uses the same tactic. She lets people underestimate True. her, yeah. acting like a girl. And Strong Belrose does the exact same thing, just acting like a fat slob. He does what he does well. He does, which is killing. Business is killing and business is good. <laughs> yes. Goes back to calls for an upgrade on his tiny vest. But... Maybe one that covers his nipples. <laughs> but even then, Arston, the self centered Arston, Barristan has to upstage him in the same chapter and steal his thunder yeah. with an even cooler battle. It's like a Darth Maul versus Obi Wan Kenobi scene right there. Yeah. It's battle staff. Not even a battle staff, just like a walking stick. It's pretty cool. Beats the crap out of the guy. Yeah. Awesome. So I feel like like Danny's reaction to finding out about Jorah was actually very calm. I would have Yeah. I would have been like <laughs> Dracaris, but uh <laughs> she really handled her shit. But um I don't know, I feel like her reaction to Barristan's deception was I mean it's just because it was tied in with Jorah's that she yeah. overreacted a little bit. I would have been like, great, I have the best knight in the realm on my side. Excellent. He's been guarding me this entire time. I she doesn't like being lied to. I don't know. What do you guys think? I think it's part of, I, part I of the, it's partially the that. Thing. Yeah, she, yeah, she finds out this other lie, and it's another lie stacked on top of that. It's just it's just too much at once. But, yeah. And the fact that that first lie is as tragic and as devastating as it is, mm-hmm. it's just too much he he didn't actually do her any harm at any point you know in the fact that he took a pardon from robert i don't know wouldn't anybody do that right take a pardon or die so and and if danny was in a better frame of mind she probably yeah again if she hadn't heard just about jorah right then if it would have been in like any other situation danny probably would have been like you know what you're right but I don't know. I think Danny takes yeah. Danny's interesting. You guys called her, called her out for like not appreciating what she has in Belwas, which I'm actually on the opposite side. I don't think she has anything in Belwas other than a bodyguard. Uh, but uh, who an awesome bodyguard? Remember, I love him, but you know he's just a bodyguard. But I don't think I kind of you've opened my eyes. I don't. I don't think she takes anybody's advice that seriously, except maybe Miss Sandy. I mean. She's always talking about how valuable Jorah is and how his advice and stuff. He ne- she never she takes Jorah's advice. To him. Ever. <laughs> it's valuable because it shows her what not, not to, to do. do. I guess. <laughs> like, Jorah, what's your opinion? Got it. Okay. We're going to do that <laughs> for sure. But it, it's almost like she doesn't take anybody's advice unless they're speaking in riddles like Quaith. Yeah. She's kind of riding her own game, which she do- you know, she's done well, but right. I, don't know. I don't know how much what, value one thing she that, puts in that kind of stuff. One thing that Danny is at least trying to do is it seems to me is channel the dragon yeah targaryen quote-unquote dragon persona uh and and in some ways she does a very good job of it but i think she feels like 
you know, to be a ruler like her predecessors, she needs to channel the dragon. And I think she wants to handle it a different way than like Viserys handled. You're waking the dragon. He's a creep. I think that's kind of what she's trying to do. How do you guys feel she's growing as a leader? I mean, we saw some some interesting things there. Her reasoning for sending strong Belwas to fight, going out amongst the people and making time for him and stuff, even though it ended up being kind of dangerous. What do you think of Annie kind of her growth path as a, a leader of people? Uh, um, to be honest, it's not great <laughs> because she's not she's not putting a whole lot of forethought into things. She's conquering no, she's like gonna, a champ. You think she's getting <laughs> but... lucky? I, I, I was going to say something slightly. I was going to say she's like a savant because everything she does kind of somehow turns to gold. But mm-hmm. but I but the way you put it, Brooke, is I, I can't disagree with that. It doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like a lot of calculation and a lot of forethought, but it all just kind of works. Yeah, like yeah, she's like, great at battle. She has proven that. She's yeah. a very I was going to say tactician. the Yunkai thing really worked out. Yeah. Yeah. But um but as like a leader, there's a lot of logistics there as they've seen with the supply chain. And uh you're going to free all those people. <laughs> you are now responsible for them. It's like saving someone's life. You're now responsible for them. Yeah. And uh she's sucking at that. Well, yes and no. I mean, some of the people want to just leave them behind or let them starve. I mean, at least she's taking ownership, right? And, I realize yeah, that's it's... a middling response, but she, I, I mean, I think, I think this chapter did a good job of actually painting what kind of a shit show they're in right now. They don't have a lot of options. All the crops are burned. The wall, wells are poisoned. There's no food anywhere. She doesn't have a whole lot of choice, you know, to, to help these people. She wants to. In fact, that's why she's <laughs> choosing to assault marine instead of move on like jorah says because she she can't take these people's lives for granted right and this kind of comes back to something we talked about oh clear back when jr mormont went on his great ranging and that's mission creep you know danny went to slaver's bay to get an army she got the army (laughs) yeah and now she's completely sidetracked into freeing every slave that she can find yeah and that's landed her kind of in this predicament. So. I think we're going to talk a little bit about on that theme in Davos After Dark, but... I hope so. Okay. Uh, uh, Sock I and Susmapas for Marine. We haven't done sure. a Sock and Susmapas in a while. Uh, if you go to the, the map in the books for the east and find Slaver's Bay, it's a big kind of circular-ish bay, um, the slave cities are all kind of lined up there right in a row. Uh, Astapor at the bottom, Yunkai in the middle, and Marine up at the top, kind of right at the corner of, of the bay there. So that's where Marine is. Uh, enjoy. It's about 100 miles north of Yunkai, or right along the coast. They say that the Great Pyramid of Marine is 800 feet tall, which would make it taller than the wall. That's crazy. That's pretty good. It's really tall. Wait, how yeah. tall is the Great Pyramids of Giza? Less Hold on. tall. Giza... I'm putting Wikipedia, my eggs in the Wikipedia. less. I'm putting my eggs eggs okay. in the less tall basket. You, you got a you got a, a guess there, Matt. Five hundred. Four hundred eighty-three feet. Damn it! It's coming Future. up in meters because I'm in Canada. Hold on. Dang it! <laughs> convert. Know how to convert times three-ish. Uh, Divided by three. Oh no! Yeah, times three-ish. Yeah, you're right. Hold Sorry. on. I, let me just put this into a converter. Feet. <laughs> <B, just, laughs> 
How tall Peter's... is feet? It's like 3.13 or something, isn't it? Something crazy. 139. Oh, you said 500, Matt? How many? How much yeah. did you say? I said 483 feet. Jerks. 456. 456. Oh, Price is Right rules we both lose. Yeah. <sighs> Anyways, right. that makes this pyramid humongous. Yeah. Yeah, double that. To reach no, that height, double. you have to have square footage at the base. Yeah, it's just. Yeah, the base must be enormous. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Anyways. Mm. Uh, do you guys buy this Ben Brown, Brown Ben Plum uh, has Blood of the Dragon? You buy it? He sounds like he loves to talk. He does. He does. I think that it's important that Gurm put that in there because it could be important. Um, like otherwise, oh he would just like let it go, right? He would like, Is oh, this... this guy, the dragons love this guy because he smells like curry or okay, whatever. Happened in this chapter. Yeah, I was gonna say, does, is this the chapter where Viserion kind of latches onto him a little bit? Yeah, yeah. He jumps on, him, lands him. on his head. Okay. Yeah. Lands okay. half on his head. Remember if it was this one or if it was later? He's like, I like you, but I don't know where to land. Your dome, your dome is inviting. <laughs> your shoulder seems nice, too. I've got a cat like that. <laughs> yes, you do. I I mean, if you go back and back and back and back and back and back and know how much fucking those kings did, like, and the, you know, like, there's the blood of dragons in, like, everybody. <laughs> I I believe it. Yeah, why not? Yeah, it's, well, it's the same thing with Summer licking Sam's hand. We really put a lot of stock in these animals' opinions. <laughs> so, I do. I'm, yeah. I'm pro Ben Blum. Okay. He's a great guy. Uh, recognized one of Gurm's quotes, the one about the no old cell swords. There's old cell swords, there's bold cell swords, but no old bold cell swords. Mm-hmm. Good quote. There's a pilot, airmail pilot. 1949, E. Hamilton Lee. There are old pilots and bold pilots, but no old bold pilots. Oh. oh. How did you know that? I, I heard it somewhere before, and it rang a bell, so I Googled it when I read it. I heard it in some class or something. All right. Perjury. Just teasing. <laughs> uh, anything else about this Danny chapter? All right. Good. We lost to Greet, and now we've lost to Oznok, so Paul. Oh, no. Who are we going to lose next? Ugh. Uh, Brooke, why don't you tell us this Tyrion chapter? Certainly no one is stylish. No. Cripples and bastards and broken things, but the power of the mind can give you wings. Drinking and japing and yeah, ladies. Tyrion, Lannister, or Imp, if you please. Alright, so this uh, Tyrion chapter is very short in comparison. Mm-hmm. So Tyrion has snuck out of bed with Sansa. For a little morning delight with Shay in the hidden chamber where Robert has stashed all the Targaryen dragon skulls from the throne room. Relations are still strained with his young wife, not helped by having to tell her her brother and her mother were brutally murdered. He spares the details that Rob's head had been removed, the wolf's head sewn in place, crown nailed to it, or that her mother's naked, mutilated body had been dumped in the green fork in a gruesome mockery of the Tully funeral practices. And that's probably how Sansa was able to hide any reaction from him instead of sobbing behind closed doors later. Relations are not at all strained with Shay, unless you count the straining of Tyrion's breeches. (laughs) She's been hired as one of Sansa's maids, 
better accommodating Tyrion's and Shay's affair. After a dirty little game of monsters and maidens among the dragon skulls, Tyrion has a quiet anxiety attack against Shay's breast. He's got a lot of stressors in his life right now, including his wife, his sister, his nephew, his father, the Tyrells, Pycelle, Littlefinger, the Red Viper of Dorne, and even Varys is giving him grief, not making any promises about not telling Cersei the truth about Shay, should Cersei get suspicious about Tyrion talking to one of Sansa's maids. So Tyrion knows that having Shay so close is a huge risk and that he needs to smuggle her out of the Red Keep once again. He thinks about sending her to Tatea's, where she would be well-treated if she wanted to keep up her whoring profession, or maybe marrying her off to Bronn, who has never minded his master's backwash. Or even better, to Sir Talad the Tall, a hedge knight sworn to Joffrey, who Tyrion had seen making eyes at Shay. So as Shay kisses him goodbye after their little tryst, he decides that Sir Talad is the best choice. He's young, he's talented, and most importantly, Sir Talad is tall. And that's pretty much the end of the chapter. Was like I feel like we've seen a number of these like Tyrion Hump and Shay moving on chapters. <laughs> like, I'm almost positive there's been at least two in the past. Bravo! He's, he's got something else on his mind. <laughs> Bravo though for calling it uh, his master's backwash. When considered <laughs> a sexual nature, that has a, just a very interesting connotation. Oh gosh! <laughs> Tyrion uses something else, like his master's sloppy seconds or his master's <laughs> leftovers, something like that. <laughs> no, I like backwash. <laughs> uh, but uh, interesting that Tyrion thinks of that at all. Like he must have a very high regard for Bronn if he's not instantly jealous of it. Yeah. Which um, I think we already knew he had a high regard for Bronn, or at least. Has a very As he should. Re- real, realistic knowledge As of what Bond's value is, is. Yeah, I know. Okay, we know you love Bron. I think though that the Everyone fact loves <clears throat> I didn't come up with this until just now when you brought up the jealousy, but I think the fact that he even brings up Sir Talad as an option indicates that he would be jealous. Bron is a completely feasible option for him. So, so he brings up this Sir Talad guy who we don't know much about. Yeah, we've, uh, so I Talib, remember his, his name being Mench something. Yeah, da, da, da. yeah, he's tall. But anybody of import, like, why this guy? What, like, just because he looked at her once? I think that might be indicative of that. He's like, oh, maybe somebody else, not Braun. Yeah, maybe you're right. Well, maybe he's looking to still have a little Shay on the side. Oh, and and Braun, you know, is Tyrion's friend and everything. But once he's got Shay, I don't know if he would be too amenable to no way allowing yeah. his buddy to to hop back in the sack and and Bronn's sly enough i think that it would be difficult for Tyrion and Shay to sneak around under his mm. nose whereas I'm... Talon maybe you know maybe Talon uh, yeah we could we could sneak some stuff around that guy i must have missed i didn't get that impression in the chapter that he was still hoping to continue something with her i don't think it's explicitly stated but okay. i wonder if that's part of what goes into it he has a hard time letting Shay go yeah, I feel like these are all idle thoughts. Like, yeah. there's been studies about this. When you think about the method you're going to use to accomplish a goal, sometimes that gives you, like, um like a surge of satisfaction, like you've already accomplished it. Like, if you're thinking about vacuuming, 
but you haven't actually vacuumed yet. <laughs> but you feel like the satisfaction of having vacuumed that you lose all motivation for actually doing the chore. <laughs> so that's awesome. Like, just be aware of that when you like hype yourself up about getting something done, and then don't You're not do actually it. Actually, doing it. Yeah. <laughs> that's why. That's because you already like felt the rush of. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's true. Good point. Um, going the lawn. Yeah, so I, I feel like at this point, it's just like idle fantasies. Tyrion does not want to get rid of Shay. He loves this arrangement, even though it's causing him a lot of stress. It's really nice just having her, like, next door. Perfect segue for my word of the day. <laughs> word of the day! Yeah. Shame. Shame. <laughs> when you feel tremendous guilt for cheating on your spouse, but know in your heart you can live with the guilt so long as you get the nookie. So you can take that cookie. And stick it up here. Yeah. So is that spelled S H A E M E? Yes. Very good. I think that one will go down as one of the one of the better ones. Very good. Thank you. I like mm. it. I like it a lot. She's she's Shame. a great actress. Like I, I've given Tyrion a lot of crap in the past for like you have to remember what she does for a living. But the way the way she engages with him, it's just it would be really hard not to be fooled by this. She knows the buttons to push with him, doesn't yes, she? Yes, absolutely. She's very deft about it. For example, during this little tryst, she like blew out the taper that she was using to light the room. Yeah. Which is so she really didn't have nice. to look at him. She doesn't have to look at him. Yeah. <laughs> but she still accomplishes sleeping with him. Yeah. What's the opposite of shame? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, neither do I. <laughs> but but well done. Probably some, because probably something to do with Davos. No like he Tyrion is a very smart guy. He never once picked up that her putting out the light was like a survival tactic. He really just thought it was a fun game. <laughs> I didn't either. See, maybe mm. I would be fooled too. I didn't pick up on that. <laughs> it did sound like a fun gonna, game. I'm just going to slip this paper bag over your head, honey. It's just a fun game. <laughs> That's why she does it. <laughs> kind of a fluffy, sugary chapter. Unless you yeah. guys had anything else. Uh, yeah, I got nothing. I'm um, impressed with Sansa not breaking down in front of Tyrion. I mean, I think it would have been in her best interest to use Tyrion, you know, for him to for her to let him nurture her. But uh, she's really just not given in to those Lannisters. Not not one tear. Good for her. Uh, yeah. Uh, anything else then? Before we jump into Davos After Dark. Let's do it. All right. Well, thanks everyone uh, for joining us. Now time to enter the realm of book spoilers. Davos After Dark. So if you don't want to be spoiled for future books, get out of here right now. Join us next week. We've got more Storm of Swords. Sansa 4, Tyrion 8, Sansa 5, and Jaime 7. That's chapters 59 through 62. We're only doing four chapters next episode. Uh, so Not because we're lazy, that. because there's an odd number of chapters remaining in the book or something, right? And it all works out better if we do. Yeah, yeah. exactly. 
So it'll all work out in the end. If we didn't do it this way, we'd end up with like two chapters for our last episode or something like that. So. Right. But anyways, now it's time for Davos after Dark. Oh, wait. No, it's not yet quite time. I have one more thing to say. If you liked the musical interludes in this episode, please know that they are written and performed by our very own Matt, and they are available for you to download. You can give us a couple dollars, or they are there to download for free for your enjoyments. Uh, Just go to davosfingers.bandcamp.com or look up the link on davosfingers.com. Your voice during that whole thing was just remarkable. Like you delivered that with zeal and zest. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm very great. caffeinated right now. <laughs> oh, that that oh really was like oh really? Because I didn't give a shit about what I was saying. <laughs> Davos after dark, starting now. Davos after dark. Let's start right at the top. So, this is something that I think two of us at least mentioned. Uh, as we were talking about what to talk about during Davos After Dark. And twice in this block of chapters, it's mentioned that Grey Wind's head was sewn onto Rob's body. So there are some that contend that this never happened and that Grey Wind is actually still alive. Uh, our friend Lady G, Lady Guinevere, Guinevere, Guinevere. has actually written Guinevere has actually written a whole essay on it. Um, LG, yes. And it's it's pretty compelling. Um, what do you guys think? Could Grey Wind still be alive? And we did also, I, I don't want to uh, shortchange, one of, our, one of our listeners actually sent us an email indicating, that, indicating this theory as well. I think maybe Matt knew about it already. Um, but anyway, thanks to that listener. Sorry, I don't have my Gmail up to thank you by your name, but... You sent it around too, saying, hey, this exists and it's out there. Take a look. So thanks for that. I think it's certainly feasible. I don't believe it, but I I think it's feasible. It's certainly not like, it's certainly not the craziest thing out there. Do we want to, do we want to give the, give a brief, very brief version of this theory? Yeah, sure. I think it would be valuable. We'll, <clears throat> we'll make sure that it's uh, available as well, but... Uh, you can basically go to uh, Lady Guinevere's WordPress and, and find it. Um, Grey Wind and Reynold Westerling Alive is essentially what she's called it. Basically what it says is that most of what we get uh, indicating that, uh, other than these chapters which you've just covered, uh, where people are getting news from afar that uh, that Rob has had Grey Wind's uh, heads under his body, most of what we get is like wolf dreams and things where they're like, I can't I can't sense all the wolves and you know things like that right which are they're not they don't explicitly say yeah and my brother Grey which wolves which yeah. wolves aren't aren't around or can't that you can't sense there's nothing explicitly from the wolf dreams ever that say Grey Wind died I'm so sad Grey Wind is dead right like there's there's nothing else there's nothing that ever explicitly says that from a wolf point of view like a dream um it's all very cleverly and cunningly written and 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 you know i've said this a few times like having a sister that writes for a living sometimes i get a look into that it's it's they're very very careful with the way they word things to to mm-hmm. mean things a certain way and if it, it's it's not that it's 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 like happening happening on language that's that um that that's that non-committal 
would be kind of difficult when you look at it. So he's chosen it carefully to to kind of keep the door open, it seems. But here's... The rest of the theory just kind of lies on the fact that, well, the small folk kind of are embellishing the story, and it's it's easy for those stories to grow. There's and, no first-hand account out there of right. someone actually seeing Rob you, and Grey Wind You get an account from, from Merritt Frey, and, and Lady G uh, ex- goes into this. Uh, in her in her theory, you get an account from Merritt Frey, who was whose job it was to get uh, Umber drunk, right? So like he wasn't yeah, he, he wasn't exactly shit. around. He didn't yeah. see shit. He was passed out under a table when the bullets uh, were fly, when the corals started flying, right? So he didn't see it. He's getting another account from somebody else. Um, very very little very little real account is given to us, and so I can see for sure why the speculation would arise. My main reason for not really believing it is the other half is true. We know we know for a fact that Cat does get thrown in a river, found naked, alive downstream. And if the stories were told together, I don't know, half of it's true, I'm probably going to believe the other half. That's my main reason for not believing it. She even goes into the logistics of the fact that uh, Grey Wind, a dire wolf's head, would be really big yes, to be sewn onto body. a... Yeah. human's body right Right. yeah mm-hmm. brooke's not mm-hmm. buying it they're still they're still kind of young the wolves um ish they are they're a year and yeah. a half old or something yeah i i share your hesitation scad in that i just don't see why he would still be alive like lady didn't get spared so we know that germ has no problem with just like be killing off wolves well the theory goes on to speculate that rob could have warged into gray wind if he warged into gray wind and then it is which, compelling yeah in, in some he's way. living his second life in there right yeah there's just I, I don't know the feeling i get is that the story has moved on from rob he served his purpose yeah for him I mean, to come back of, would be yeah. the the actually the most compelling part of the theory that she laid out that that i liked was was around reynold westerly um, exactly. They, <clears throat> basically, she says when Jamie, at, uh, I think this is at River Run when he when he catches up with some of those guys at River Run, he's asking them about what went down at the twins and you know did they find you know did they find bodies of of cat and did they find Reynold Westerling and they say well no you know they once they killed him they threw him in the river and you know. The, or, or he jumped, sorry, they, they were shooting him and he jumped into the river to try yeah. to escape. And we found a bunch of bodies, but, you know, when bodies have been in the river, you know, they all kind of look the same after a few days. And so we don't know whether he was there or not. But she says, you know, when he was jumping off, he was wearing stuff that identified his house. And so when you pull him out, you should be able to tell if you found him. So they didn't find him, which doesn't prove anything necessarily, but mm-hmm. they don't think they found him. And that was something that came up for me when we were when we were preparing for the Red Wedding episode, our last episode, was they never found Reynold Westerling. He could still be alive. And then my thought was, well, what does it matter narratively if Reynold Westerling is still alive? Like they're gonna have this Martin's gonna have this big reveal later where Reynold Westerling comes back. Like, no big deal, right? But if it if he is involved with Grey Wind somehow, taking care of him or something like that, uh then his survival could be impactful, but in my opinion, that would hinge on that one thing of Grey Wind being alive. It would also narratively somewhat, I don't know about redeem, but but give an interesting twist 
to the whole Westerling Westerling books, right? Yeah, and you know, like the relationship Grey Wind has with the Westerlings, right? Suspicions, yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, and also, you know, like they go from cool, she's a queen, to oh fuck them, they betrayed Rob, to oh look, he's redeeming them by taking care of the wolf and doing this whole other plot thing. I don't know. Uh, it would be somewhat narratively interesting to me, but Absolutely. I'm I'm still not buying it, Brooke. But it's it's interesting though. It's not the worst theory I've heard for sure. No, oh yeah, no. Very well, well researched. Yeah, she yeah. researched the crap out of it. So let's do a final vote, and then we'll move on. Unless you guys have other points you want to make about this one. I give Lady Gwyn's theory two fingers. Oh wait, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Uh, well, let's let's vote on this. <laughs> Grey Wind and Reynold alive or not alive? What say you, Scott? I think not. Okay, Brooke? Not. I'm going to go ahead and say alive. Ah, you hopeless romantic. Yeah. 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 But theory was great. Yeah. Fantastic theory. Let's just let's just stay on this wolf stuff for a minute. The link between the wolves. Scad, you had an idea about Arya knowing about um, Grey Wind's death because she saw it through Nymeria, right? Yeah, like maybe she warned Nymeria like almost, almost not even on purpose, right? In that mm-hmm. moment, and uh, and heard it through Nymeria, heard Grey Wind's howl through Nymeria. Yeah, it's kind right. of my little theory. Mm-hmm. Is this connection that the wolves have going to mean something? Does it matter? I think I think it's going to matter in some way. Some some way like um, Bran knowing where Rickon is, or Bran knowing where John is, or some something like that. Because mm. the wolves are connected, and therefore Bran can learn about it. But you know what? I'm going to talk myself out of it. Bran's powerful enough that he doesn't really need the wolf to figure that stuff out. So. Uh, I don't know. I that's that's kind of along my thoughts as well. The the thought I had, I was reading through these, and I ended up going down a rabbit hole of Bran and green seeing and stuff, and found myself reading the Dance with Dragons chapters where he's with Brendan Rivers and stuff. And I realized that Brendan Rivers, you know, thousand eyes and one and everything, and everything that he can see and all that, and he's kind of this all seeing guy. But it appears that Bran has one method of seeing that Brendan Rivers doesn't have, and that's through the wolf connection, mm-hmm. which makes mm-hmm. Bran a little bit more powerful, right? Because, yeah, Brendan Rivers can warg into different animals and everything, but Bran, through warging his wolf, can see somehow or get some glimpse or determine the standing of these other wolves. And like you said, Bran, that could, or Scott, that could come into play with uh, Rickon later. That could come into play with John later, any number of things. That's something that Bloodraven doesn't have. You know what I just and That's kind of cool. The, re- the reverse. That's actually, depending on where you think Bran is going or, you know, whatever, uh, that could be a weakness of Bran's. Bran is attached to this wolf. Everyone thinks he's dead, doesn't know where he is. I don't know, in this crackpot world. Maybe Arya comes back, links back up with Nymeria. Nymeria know. Oh, the link dies at the wall, doesn't it? Could. I was going to say Nymeria senses Summer and knows where Bran is and that he's alive. And that is information that 
that they can use to find him and disrupt whatever it is that he's doing. Mm. Yeah, the prevailing idea is that the wolves can only sense each other up to, to the, the wall, wall right? Yeah. Right. That the magic of the wall somehow blocks that. Yeah. So my my proposed theory is crap. Sorry. No, not really, because that is also just a theory. Well, yes, it's... but it's reasonably well well established, well founded. Yeah. I like all these yeah, I I like all these ideas that it's going to come into play someday and that's definitely a possibility. My only worry is that George has really treated the wolves as inconsequential inconsequential and disposable to a degree. Like Lady got killed off, Nymeria chased off, hasn't been seen for many many books. John has Yes, but hasn't played a, a huge role. Yes, she's been glimpsed at and and mentioned, but still still not by Arya's side. And then uh John just like hoping for the best, sending Ghost to Castle Black while he went and climbed the wall. <clears throat> um Summer uh getting shot with that arrow. And and Bran just kind of like giving up on trying to warg into him to try to help him. Like, dog's gonna die. So, it, it's it's a little bit subjective and opinion based, but mm-hmm. well, maybe that just, just goes like, to show that the Stark kids don't recognize what they have. Yeah, yeah. Wars, yeah. So right? it could be that is what he's setting us up for. Mm-hmm. So, but I. Oh. Don't worry about me. I'm 100% pro wolves being like critical in the survival of the Starks. That would yes, be great. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Yeah, especially Shaggy Dog. I think you're going to find in the opening pages of of the next book just how important one of those wolves is. That being Ghost. Oh. Be- I mean, oh. depending on what theory you believe with John, but. Uh-huh. You know, mm. uh, Ghost very well could keep him alive for a time. Should um, we start calling him Jost? Yeah. Jost. Gone? <laughs> gone. I like gone. <laughs> <laughs> or, or it could just be gone. That's got interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting, interesting connotation. connotation. Uh, right. Mm. Friggin' Kit like Harrington. Friggin' Kit Harrington. Just... I don't want to talk about the show, I don't Great. want anything. Neither do I. I don't want anything. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna say a word. Spoiled by fucking Best Buy. <laughs> when I was doing some shopping. Anyway. So prevalent, man. It's so everywhere. prevalent. All right. Um, Brooke, you brought up a really good point about Barristan ratting out Jorah. Tell us about that. Kind Tell of a dick move, right? I hadn't thought of it, but... Was it necessary? You know, you no. know kind of. I, I feel like Barristan really gave in to something petty deep down inside of him. Because we've seen from his point of view chapters that he is like a stand-up guy through right. and through. Uh-huh. And he did not have to rat out Jorah. Like, that information could have been disclosed to Danny the second Arston ran into her on those docks, Right. You'd have been like, oh, and that guy is a traitor. It doesn't matter how he knew. He could have proven it. So bringing up now was just kind of like, yeah, well, you're going you're gonna to tell on me? Well, yeah. I'm going to tell on you. Yeah, a little bit. Oh, I got something for you, buddy. <clears throat> here's, here's, here's what I think about that. 
because I believe the world of Barristan, uh, or I think the world of him, the way I see it is is that he sees Jorah as a manageable component that can be valuable to Danny. He knows that he was a traitor in the past. I think he knows, although I'd need to go back and check, I think he knows that the report started drying up. Well, I think that's probably why he kept him around. He, that's he didn't I'm... say anything earlier. But as but as long as 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 long as he was around to watch him, right, and make sure he wasn't pulling any shit, he thought it was actually in Danny's best interest to have Jorah. He doesn't have many people with insight into Westeros, you know, and he is a skilled warrior and stuff. So he actually thought he was an asset. But if if he Barristan wasn't going to be around, then he Barristan thought that he needed to expose Jorah as well because he was a threat that he could no longer manage and Danny might not be able to see through it without him around. That's the way I feel you're, about it. You're giving a lot of benefit of the doubt on this one. I am. Threat he can manage or wanting to take someone down with him. Nah. <laughs> I believe it. I, yeah. I agree Very that good. perhaps Barristan did see that Jorah had had come around and was firmly team Danny. Me I mean, like yeah. anyone with two eyes could see it. Anyone with one eye half blind in that eye could see it. But <laughs> uh, yeah, just the, the whole conversation was very petty. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> and he didn't even like specifically, he didn't like say his name, but he, yeah. he said enough. He like wink, wink, yeah. cock his head over to Jorah. Yeah. Uh, I feel like it kind of hurt him that he was keeping that secret too. Oh yeah. Like, so I'm I'm interested in. I think we might have talked about this in the past episode about Barristan's whole getting to Danny. Like, did Illyrio know that Barristan was Barristan, or did he really think he was just Arston? I have never operated under any other thought than that that Illyrio knew that was Barristan the Bold and was sending, like, the best of the best to Danny. Yeah. Right. I think we've talked about in the past that we thought that maybe, you know, because Illyrio and Varys have Aegon, who they're training up, right? Yep. And I think we talked about how they kind of, like, they gave Danny to Khal Drogo, kind of, we'll see if this thing works out, but Aegon's really our number one guy. And then once the dragons were born, <laughs> Illyrio and Varys are like, oh. <laughs> Maybe we should do something for this Danny chick. She might be valuable. And that's when you send someone important like Barrist in her way. Do the readers know, back in the non-Davos After Dark version of this show, do the readers know yet that Varys and Illyrio are tied at the hip? Only that conversation clear back in Game of Thrones. Which we don't actually know it's Varys and Illyrio. Right. Arya hears the... it and she describes people she hears, but you don't know, right? The mild, the even mildly careful reader could suss it out, but because I think during your summary of the Danny chapter, you talked about Barristan seeking out Varys and Illyrio. No, I didn't. Are you sure? Positive. All right. Mm. I talked about how he sought out his one true king, but not through Varys and Illyrio. Okay. Well, yeah, Illyrio. Uh, he went. He he ended up in the service of Illyrio because Illyrio did send. Arston and Belwas. Right. But No, I thought I you didn't. said Varys and Illyrio. Maybe you no, didn't. I didn't. Okay. So Illyrio knew who Barristan was. I Agreed? think so, yeah. Agreed. I think so too. Alright. Um 
We talked about getting to this in the main part of the cast. Danny and Maureen, maybe the whole Slaver's Bay arc. People are bored by it. They question why they spend so much time there. Why does why is that important narratively and just for Danny? I I think it's important. Uh, I I don't know that I don't know that Danny's thinking this. Like it's almost like a happy accident that it's happening to her. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is this is on the job training for Danny to rule. The same on the job training that John is getting or will get at the wall when he becomes Lord Commander. It's taking a bunch of people that are different than you. And mm-hmm. learning how to manage them and rule them and be in, be in charge. And it's it's like, you know, like normally the kings in Westeros, they don't get training for it unless, you know, they grow up and see it happening or whatever. Some of them are too young and probably doesn't take too well or whatever. You know, like Joffrey didn't get enough training to be a ruler. They're getting training on somebody else's dime, right? <laughs> Danny's getting training by ruling the Marinese and any mistakes she makes are value for her being a future ruler and that's it's it's extremely important that she learns all these lessons from this experience and john too up at the wall if they're going to depending on where this narrative goes you know if they're going to end up being leaders and Mm -hmm. so that's why i think the marine arc is important uh from a narrative purpose that they're growing from this and yeah it might be boring (laughs) to read sometimes but She's learning a shitload while she yeah. while she deals with all this. Mm. Brooke, thoughts? Agreed, Scad. Right. Good stuff. Yeah, no, I agree with Scad. I don't really have anything of substance to add. Me too. You know, I think that uh, the lessons that she's learning are pretty poignant right now. Scott, you mentioned all the different people she has to rule and how that's important. Like... And all the compromises she's she's realizing she has to make that yeah. ruling isn't as cut and dry as she wants it to be. Like to obtain peace in Marine, she has to sacrifice a form of slavery again in the reopening of the fighting pits. Mm. Right? She has to give that up to protect it's her fair. human. Yeah, and to protect her human children, <laughs> who she's the Misa of, she had to train her her chain her dragon children. Right? These terrible compromises that she has to make. And like all these achievements that she manages to get in Marine, like all of a sudden, you know, the Sons of the Harpy aren't killing people and everything because of these compromises. It appears that she's now won a victory, but she sees it as defeat, right? And, you know, she relied on being the mother of dragons and the fiery temperament of, like we talked about in the cast, of being of the dragon and everything. And she kind of relied on that temperament to carry her to the throne. It's like the same temper that she accessed to crucify the 163 masters that we're going to get later on, right, Mm -hmm. In, in revenge for what they did to the children. She's now finding she has to temper that. She has to be more malleable kind of and open. Uh, I mean, and after all, you know, how did the quote unquote dragon temperament work for Ares in the end? How did mm-hmm. it work for Viserys? It didn't. And I think Danny makes an important discovery there. She realizes that all of that that I just described makes her 100% miserable. And that maybe she doesn't want peace at all. <laughs> maybe the whole fighting for peace thing to her just in the end is, isn't worth it. Which is um, what she exults in flying away on Drogon, right? Yeah, like, and I'm just giving into this now. 
as I was thinking about it, I went and I remembered one of Brendan B. Fish's essays and I went back and read it. It's a really good one. It's long. Um, it's called the, the Violent Future Path of Daenerys Targaryen. And he makes the point that, yes, in the end, she's going to just totally give in to the idea of I'm just going to be a dragon. I'm going to take over, you know, and uh, that could be scary. Could be. It would be certainly an interesting arc. Mm-hmm. I and 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 may, and maybe that's you know that you've taken my argument and gone a step further. And you know what I'm saying is she's learning, getting on the job training, learning how to rule. You're actually saying she's getting on the job training, learning that she doesn't want the fucking job. Right. Not that way. It at makes least. her miserable. Right. Yep. And so, and so she takes a completely different path. That's cool. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Beefish um, points out this quote that she has uh, in dreams, and she sees Jorah Mormont in the dream. She said, I was tired, Jorah. I was weary of war. I wanted to rest, to laugh, to plant trees and see them grow. I'm only a young girl. And then she thinks to herself, no, you are the blood of the dragon. Dragons plant no trees. Remember that. Yeah. And, and remember your words. The Targar- Targaryen words are fire and blood. <laughs> True. Yeah, it's very much like um, the Greyjoys. We do not sow. Right, and they, we do not plant. They have fully embraced that mm-hmm. and and thrived as a sort of mini-culture because of it. They just... They, they just conquer. Mm-hmm. So, like Beefish says, potentially violent future path of Daenerys Targaryen. Cool. Mm. Yeah. Good essay. We can link to it. Um, those are the stuff I highlighted for dad conversations. You guys have anything else you want to cover before we sign off? Oh, Scad the heads of the is, dragon. Uh, and Scad is predicting the victorious return of Strong Belwas. I am. <laughs> He's really is... hanging on there. <laughs> He'll be fine. Oh yeah, just to just He'll to go fine. back to the the Talhad conversation, he does come back in a pretty important way. He's, he's one of the, the dudes who, um, uh, Cersei accuses of finagling yes. with, with Marjorie. Marjorie. Yeah, but he's like, it's like one of 50 or something. Doesn't she accuse like everybody? <laughs> yeah. But he, he gets sent to, um, Oh, that, that Kyburn. messed up Maester Kyburn. Kyburn. Yeah. Yeah. So who knows what he'll come back as. Yeah. Oh, yeah, maybe maybe so Robert maybe, Strong maybe he's Jr. Robert Strong. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's tall. Maybe, he's tall. Maybe he's Robert Strong's elbow. Like, oh. we just don't know. New, uh, Full new theory. New theory. Robert Strong is actually Sir Talad. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Get writing. <laughs> oh, I'm still working on the red wedding writing. So, Jeez. and I'm still working on my lyrics. <laughs> Well, that's right. Yeah, I haven't done a whole lot recently. Don't, yeah, don't say it. Well, it's not uh, like you've been doing anything at work. Yeah. All right, uh, Brooke, you mentioned Heads of the Dragon. Oh, just that there's a note here. I think it was a scad note. The dragon made a scad. Um, I think we've discussed this before. I'm yeah. Danny John Tyrion. Who are you guys? Uh, Bron. <laughs> <laughs> Bron just spread across all three dragons as they're flying through the sky. Riding all three of them. 
Well, he's going to give one to Lawless. So Lawless. And, and baby Tyrion. Yeah, it's going to be a family thing. Oh, I like Those it. Those are my heads of the dragon. Well done. Now the Danny John Tyrion thing seems pretty good. Yeah. I can see Aegon maybe being one at first and then something happening to him. Or they thinking he will be one and then he ends up not working out because he sucks. I think I'm going with... Nah, yeah, Danny John Tyrion. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, but yeah, just watch. It'll turn out to be like... Brand. Danny. Yeah. <laughs> Danny, Ghost, and... Ghost, yes. <laughs> Wouldn't that be so cute? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they have to like strap him in, kind of. They build like a basket for him to sit in. Little paws hanging over the side of the basket. Like like a like a, a cat or a dog when they hang over the back of a couch. <laughs> like his, straddle it. His, that would be ghost. <laughs> with his tongue hanging out in the wind, like you know, like a dog. And I know dire wolves aren't dogs, but Yeah. Third one, Sam. Done. Sam. Okay. Rickon, Poxy Tim, and oh, R.I.P. Poxy. R.I.P. Poxy. All right. We done? Anything else you guys want to talk about? Uh, I think we've done we've we've done a lot. I would love to talk about more, but yeah, we're yeah. two and a half hours in. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's finish it, this thing off. Brooke, you want to take us out? Thanks everyone for joining us. This is Brooke signing off, saying. You know nothing, Jon Snow, for the last time. Oh, man. Yes. Also, in reference to Jon and Egret, uh, I haven't done a hold steady lyric in a long time. So this is Matt signing off, reminding you that there are strings attached to every single lover. Uh, I'm going to go with a quote from uh, Varys, uh, from the chapter with Tyrion. He says, With those whisperings, so I must buy my life anew each day. I thought that was pretty. Hmm. Good night, everybody. Good night. night. My faith in the divine has been strengthened just right now. <laughs> what is that? The divine? Like, in the divine. Uh, I was a little torn because tonight's Stanley Cup Finals game three and it went to overtime right as we were about to record. Well, nine o'clock is when it went to overtime. I was like, crap, I'm going to have to m- miss the end of the game. Overtime in the Stanley Cup Finals. <laughs> the overtime had started and so I was watching it on my iPad here as I was getting my stuff ready at my computer. 9.30 rolls around, and 9.30 on the dot, the game ends. Someone scores the game winner. You are truly blessed. That's amazing. Yep. A miracle. Good Jesus job. lives. <clears throat> <laughs> Praise Relore. Oh. Hello? What was that? Matt, are you with us still? Sorry. Yeah, I'm here. Um, my wife had to print something off real quick right at our printer. Oh. Cool. So that's what that sound is. <laughs> Had to. Is it a note to you? Is it say, go to bed, you have church in the morning? <laughs> oh, he went I too. I know he left.
Okay. You guys left me alone again. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> and I already did my pre-podcast poop. Like I'm <laughs> just, a, just an empty drum sitting there, eh? <laughs> Snack your stomach. I want to hear how hollow it is. <laughs> okay. Well, I've got a Mountain Dew. I've even got a bottled water tonight. We spent the day at the water park. Oh my gosh. That's fun. Like water slides and stuff? Yeah. Oh, fun. And they all came back alive? We all came back alive. We're all crispy. Everyone's sunburnt. You know. You know what it's like spending a day at the tired right now. I'm exhausted. Oh yeah, no. (laughs) Spending the day in the sun is like a sleeping pill for me. Right. Hello. I'm back. There you are. All right. Okay. Thanks, guys. Sorry, that's. I don't think we've ever stopped in the middle of a summary. It was getting bad. Okay. Hello, friends. Matt again. Uh, just giving giving uh, credit where credits due as far as songs are concerned. Well, they got two this time. Well, one and a half, really, if you consider. Well, depending on what you think, Limp Bizkit, I guess. But anyways, that first song was uh, Nookie by Limp Bizkit. It's from their album Significant Other. Uh, yeah, I've recommended you get some albums um, before in the past. This is not one of those albums. But hey, if you're into that thing, whatever. The second song, however, is called Banging Camp. It's by The Hold Steady off of their album Separation Sunday. This is the first Hold Steady album that I ever bought. And it took a little while to grow on me, I won't lie. It's a concept album. Uh, It's got some fun themes, mainly focused around religion. Don't worry, though, it's not preachy by any stretch of the imagination. Really grown on me, though. I love it. Uh, Check that band out. They are my second favorite band of all time. And uh, I know they come up a lot on the podcast. I hope that doesn't bother you. But anyways, we love you guys and can't wait to chat with you again next time. Take care. (music) Thank you.